welcome to Optimal, the podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Dickon Weatherby, and this podcast and my website all focus on one thing, and that's the quest for optimal health. Our goal is to help you to help your patients achieve optimal health so they can experience an optimal life. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google, and Spotify. And also make sure to go over to OptimalDX.com and check out our resources on the site. Now, without any further delay, is today's episode. Well, hello there, everyone. Dr. Dickon Weatherby here from Optimal DX. Welcome to Optimal, the podcast. Sorry, we've been away for a little while. It is uh, December 8th, so this is kind of our end of 2022 podcast, kind of a bit of reflection on the year and looking forward to the new. I'm joined, as always, by Beth Ellen DeLulio in Naples, Florida. The snow is falling here in Bend, Oregon. Definitely got a wintry vibe. But we wanted to kind of cover a few things just to kind of wrap up the year. The first are a couple of three biomarker and nutritional insights from blood work that I want to talk about. And then finally, we're going to kind of finish up with a little bit of holiday season healthy tips. And I think Beth has got a few things up her sleeve that we should be fun to go through. But one of the things in the Optimal DX or the ODX platform for our ODX members and subscribers, we have an AMA feature. And we've talked about this before on the podcast. So AMA stands for Ask Me Anything. It's really us anything because Beth is really <laughs> instrumental. The AUA doesn't really sound quite as good. But anyway, the AUA or the AMA feature. So we get a lot of questions, maybe eight to 10 a month. And these are clinically oriented questions from our software users. And Beth dives deep into the stacks. Not that people are really going to stacks anymore. Maybe they don't really understand what that term is, but I certainly do. I remember going to the stacks. We've got the little wheel that you wind yeah. and it moves. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You actually get to leaf through a physical copy of this yeah. thing. Anyway, Beth Allen dives into the stacks and really digs up some incredible information. So we wanted to kind of do a feature called Answers from the Archives. So we'll start off with that. And then we've got an update on a biomarker, a very important biomarker that we use. And then I think we'll finish up that particular section by looking at another biomarker and a feature of its diagnostics that may or may not be as clear to you as is to us, I guess, from looking at it. So the first answers from the archive. So Beth, we got a question. Is there a benefit to ordering the LCMS 25 hydroxy vitamin D test? Now, LCMS method you uncovered basically is currently kind of the gold standard for evaluating vitamin D. Now, remember, we're looking at 25-hydroxy as sort of the gold standard somewhat method. And I know there's some other tests there as well, and there's ratios between them. And so potentially in the new year, we'll be diving a little bit deeper into the various other different types of vitamin D. But for right now, the 25-hydroxy vitamin D test, there's basically two. There's the LCMS versus the immunoassay. And I think the immunoassay, is that correct? It's the one that we're all doing mostly. Yeah, it depends, really. You have the choice, actually. Yeah. And I've seen them where they're actually the same price, but another practitioner said that they thought the LCMS mm. was much more expensive. So it kind of varies, but you might find them both available. But there was a recommendation for one immunoassay. If you had to use an immunoassay, there were two actually. Okay, let's dive into that then. So the LCMS MS, really appropriately, properly called, they say it's a gold standard and that it just doesn't have as much variability. It's not confounded by other things like extra vitamin D2 mm. that we could talk about later also. So it wasn't as affected by variables. But if you had to do the amino acid, they did mention in this one particular study that the Beckman Coulter 
or the Fuji Ribio amino acids mm-hmm. were almost comparable to the LCMS. So that if that's all you got, that's okay. And of course, when you go to repeat the blood work, try to use the same lab and the same method so you mm-hmm. can really compare apples to apples. So it doesn't mean throw it out if you can't get the LCMS. But if you're using the amino acid, if you have a choice, the Beckman Coulter or the Fuji Ribio, I'm saying it like it's Italian, but I'm pretty sure. <laughs> <laughs> you put a little Italian accent on that. I like it. Yeah, I threw it in there. So, so that the, the option. Okay, cool. So just so you know, the LC slash MS slash MS stands for liquid chromatography tandem mass spectrometry. Spectrometry. So basically, LCMS method overcomes those variables, considered a gold standard. And I really like what you had to say there about making sure that if you're doing follow-up testing, use the same lab, use the same methodology, because there is so much variability. We could get a blood sample and we could send it to maybe three or four different reference labs that might use different machines. They might use different assays, and we might get a slight variance in the results on the same blood assay. So on the same blood sample. So yeah, that is really, really important. Turnaround time is a little bit slower, I think but maybe helpful if you're really trying to base some of your clinical decision-making on a more accurate Mm -hmm. method. Um, And then, of course, monitoring. If supplementation is indicated, there was a nice guideline that they estimated that the 25-hydroxy would go up about 0.5 to 1 nanogram per ml for every 100 I use. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. And vitamin D3, excuse me, seems to be a bit more efficacious at increasing serum levels. So if you can use vitamin D3, it is animal-based for the most part. Mm -hmm. Research says it might be D3 in some plant-based sources, but mostly the D3 is animal-based. So if you have someone that's vegan or vegetarian or doesn't want to use the animal source, you can use vitamin D2. It just doesn't seem to be as efficacious. Right. And then there's also some body of thought around adding in additional fat-soluble vitamins as well, vitamin A and vitamin E and vitamin K. Why not? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I know Allergy Research is one of those companies. I remember when they first came out with that kind of concept and it totally made sense to me. Well, kids cool. like, I mean, cystic fibrosis kids, you do those blood levels automatically. They all get supplemented too, but they have so much trouble absorbing fat-soluble vitamins because of their digestive issues with cystic fibrosis. So those blood levels have been tested for decades and decades in cystic fibrosis. So if you want to read the full article, we've got it in uh, the Optimal blog. Go to optimaldx.com forward slash blog, and you can read it there. All right. The electrolyte biomarker that we wanted to update or we now have updated is potassium. So Potassium, the reference range, the optimal range that we have been using is 4.0 to 4.5 milliequivalents per liter. And Beth did some research and kind of came back and said, you know what, I think we need to probably move up the top marker. So it's now four to five milliequivalents per liter. So remembering, obviously, going back to human physiology and biochemistry, the essential mineral and major electrolyte potassium influences several body functions, nerve transmission, blood pressure regulation, acid-base balance, muscle contraction. It is regulated at the level of the kidney. Obviously, a number of things that go into why someone may or may not have adequate levels, dietary intake, their overall nutritional status. As I mentioned, it's regulated by the kidney. So kidney function can be very important to look at as well as medications, the amount of patients that are on diuretics, this can seriously affect serum potassium mm-hmm. levels. Isn't there a class of diuretics called potassium sparing diuretics? Yes. <laughs> yes, so you have to be careful. Like I have a friend with renal issues and I said, I will not do anything without a prescription because I don't know if you're wasting potassium. I don't know if you're on potassium sparing. This is early on in the kidney process or disease process. 
for this particular person, but I never make a blanket. If there's any kidney issues, you don't make a blanket recommendation because you have to know, like if it's a diuretic that's potassium sparing, they're going to hold potassium in. They don't have to replace it. And right. if they have kidney problems, they're not going to get rid of it. And it pretty quickly can increase pretty quickly and become fatal, literally stop the heart. So that's when looking at that high level is really important, right? By level, yes. you know, anything above five, you're starting to, the light bulbs are starting to go off. Mm, um, keep an eye out. And again, then if it goes high, especially check renal function, check the history of someone's renal function. And that's something really to look closely at. If the renal function is declining, you have to remember they're not going to get rid of their potassium or a lot of other minerals either because the kidney's not getting rid of the excess. Yeah, aldosterone's effects yeah. on the kidney are basically mm-hmm. sparing or wasting the serum mm-hmm. potassium, and that would obviously affect the serum potassium. Um, I think one of the other interesting things when you're looking at both sodium and potassium, two of the two main electrolytes that are profound relationship to kidney function, serum potassium levels are actually really low compared to sodium levels right? So it's a very much an intracellular mm-hmm. cation. And also thinking about if there is cell damage where cells get ruptured, potassium gets released into circulation. Yes, that's true too, right? Yeah. So if it's a one-time marker that you find elevated and you have nothing to compare it to, then you'd want to repeat it mm-hmm. and monitor any changes because a one-off yeah. could be something like that. So we feel like that four to five really will allow you, the practitioners, to be able to investigate trends. And of course, that's the work that we do at ODX is really about trend analysis towards hypokalemia or low levels of potassium or hyperkalemia, especially in individuals with certain associated comorbidities. So what are those comorbidities we're looking at? Obviously, kidney function would be one of them. Hypertension, what else? Like heart failure, I think is probably another one, another reason why people are on those um because of buildup of fluid around a congestive heart and things like that. And there was, Um, I can mention maybe there was almost a million medical records that were reviewed and they found the lowest, and that's not causative, but still it's observatory. Lowest mortality occurred with a potassium of four to five milliequivalents per liter or millimoles per liter. And those with and without heart failure, chronic kidney disease, diabetes, and cardiovascular disease. So mm -hmm. that four to five sweet uh, sweet spot showed up in that huge medical review. They found all-cause mortality would increase significantly for every 0.1 milliequivalent per liter increment in potassium below 4 or above 5. Right. So there were some pretty convincing numbers and to, to change it to 4 to 5. And again, if somebody is trending high constantly and their renal function is low, then that's what you have to really watch carefully because it might not be a matter of fixing that nutritionally if their kidneys are failing. The thing you have to do is restrict potassium and go into a whole other set of dietary mm. restrictions. Yeah, because you know people aren't going to be, get, like I said, getting rid of the extra potassium or phosphorus or fluid or all the things that the kidneys are so are responsible for. Sweet. So head on over to the ODX blog. We've got a lot of different references that Beth um, referred to. And so that update has been happening in the software. All right, final on this, but this last little biomarker section. So I bet you if we did a kind of a survey and we asked practitioners, what is the one thing that you would associate an elevated GGT with? They would probably all talk about the gallbladder because I know in my trainings and things, I kind of hit that over the head. But there is some really interesting evidence pointing to glutathione deficiency, maybe too strong a word, maybe insufficiency. Or just maybe an associated need for more glutathione. Mm -hmm. And it really comes back to the enzyme itself, what GGT is, is a transferase enzyme, and it's gamma glutamyl transferase. 
And this is an enzyme that helps recycle glutathione, which is the vital antioxidant compound in our body. It's so essential for, gosh, you know, detoxification, cell growth and death, wound healing, and all that kind of stuff. So tell us a little bit about the research that you kind of uncover that kind of really helps sort of cement an increased glutathione outside of its increased GGT levels outside of its gallbladder association with this need for glutathione. Yeah, because traditionally, and we still do use it to detect cholestasis, cholecystitis, really obstruction. So yeah, it's still used for that. But if you don't see any of that actually happening with the patient or client that's in front of you, then dig around and see if there are other sources of oxidative stress or need for detoxification too. It's a big player in detoxification. Mm -hmm. But increased oxidative stress, exposure to toxins, heavy metals, pesticides. People don't realize what their exposure is. It's hard to measure. You can measure some in the body, but people, I don't think, realize how much we are exposed to heavy metals and pesticides. So consider that when you do a history with the person and see what their exposure might be for those for heavy metals and pesticides. Increased alcohol intake, you're going to see GG. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Even in general, cardiometabolic disease, which we know is an inflammatory state. So when you have inflammation, you usually have oxidative stress. If you have oxidative stress, you probably need more glutathione. And there's a good chance that the GGT is elevated. Other things too, pancreatitis, viral infection, and some medications can elevate GGT. So again, that thorough history is everything. It's yeah. not just like you see one biomarker and say, I know exactly what that is. It's always an assessment, right? It's practice. Right. <laughs> yeah. So um, I like looking at a biomarkers obviously by themselves for what they can tell you, sort of a flavor of what's going on if they're high or low above optimal. But then also looking at relationship to other biomarkers as kind of the next stage in the assessments that we do at ODX is really this pattern recognition. And so looking at GGT in the relationship to other markers of oxidative stress, and we've got tons of articles on this stuff. So go over to the research blog, you could type in oxidative stress. We have a whole series of articles. And in fact, even I think a series that we did on oxidative stress which Beth really dove into all the biomarkers that are associated with oxidative stress that we can use. A lot of the simple biomarkers that we're measuring on our patients on a daily basis. So you don't necessarily have to resort to organic acid assays and more uh, the esoteric testing from some of the companies that we know. A good chemistry screen, CBC with additional biomarkers can be super, super helpful for that first pass. So yeah, I'd like to mention too, if it's okay, we actually decrease the optimal for GGT to 17. Yes. And those, that's when we dug up a lot of that research. And like, oh. Yeah. And I think one of the other fascinating parts, this sort of little tidbit, sort of optimal takeaway is looking at the low levels of these transaminase mm-hmm. enzymes as well. So that would be AST, ALT, and GGT, mm-hmm. three. Thinking about there are obviously certain medications that can cause that as well, but also insufficiencies of magnesium or vitamin B6 because mm-hmm. transferase enzymes, are, are they use B6 as a cofactor. Mm-hmm. So very cool. Well, those are the three things we kind of wanted to talk about. Beth, is there anything else that has come to your mind in some of the biomarker research? Just so you know, Beth is doing an incredible deep dive right now. You will get to see this sometime yep. in- next year. We will be releasing this. But she's diving into every single biomarker that we currently have in our in ODX software, really doing a deep dive in, looking at the research, looking at the substantiations for optimal ranges. So we are slowly releasing this information in our blogs. And we will be releasing an ODX biomarker handbook, I think is what we're kind of calling it. Yeah, maybe just take a few minutes if there's anything kind of exciting that that you've kind of come across over the last few weeks that you want to share. And then we'll move on to some holiday healthy eating tips. (laughs) (laughs) My brain is full. It's really fascinating. I couldn't even pick one out right now because this is going to be like 400 pages as a PDF already. So 
I couldn't think yeah, yeah. out a favorite right now, but I do love that. We talked about what's our favorite biomarkers. Like the omega-3 index to me is such an important test. You can do it with blood or also as a finger stick test. But the omega-3 index, I don't think people realize, number one, that it's out there. And I'd like people to realize that it's out there. And number two, the conventional range, just saying, oh, well, you know, if you're above 4%, you're okay, is not enough. The omega-3 index has to be above 8%, really, to reduce the risk of sudden death. The low omega-3 index was associated with sudden death, which is a lot of times inexplicable. If someone dies, they didn't have a cardiac disease that was known, and they died suddenly of a heart attack from MI, and nobody could explain it. And the research is showing that, check this index, because it could be associated. So that is really one of my favorites. I really like to push that and get people, if they don't have it in the blood work, which you can get, you can get it ordered, or the finger prick test or finger stick test, Mm -hmm. maybe for $50. And it's comparable to the blood test. It's a red blood cell levels of EPA and DHA. What it is, red Mm -hmm. cell. Mm -hmm. So that was was a really big one I like to talk about frequently. Or, you know, if someone's eating whole water fish that's high in omega-3s, EPA, DHA, two to three times a week is a recommendation. It's going to be a four ounce piece, not just a little bite of it to actually get what you're going to need. And some people don't do that. I know they don't do that. Or they take the plant-based form of omega-3, which is a precursor to the EPA, DHA. And some people don't convert well. So to me, that's one of the markers that, and of course, serum vitamin D, that Mm -hmm. is being overlooked. The substantiation is there. And I think everybody should know their vitamin D level. Everybody should know their omega-3 index level. So maybe we'll have to try to find a way to get them that test available. (laughs) Yeah, no, I think that's very cool. And you have written extensively about it. We do have in the ODX research blog, as well as Optimal, the blog on our website, optimaldx.com. You can just go over there and read a lot of stuff. So we're pumping out a lot of great information. Well, it is the holiday season. And so we wanted to finish by looking at a couple of things. One is just sort of general healthy eating tips for the holidays. I know we've all just had Thanksgiving, so it just feels like we were all still suffering from indigestion from too much eating then. And now we're diving right back into Christmas. I have to say my family in England feel that the whole Thanksgiving and then the Christmas thing is kind of a little bit, from a food perspective, is a little weird. Because obviously in England, our turkey day is Christmas, right? And then I think for a lot of people in the US, turkey is for Thanksgiving. And then I'm not really sure what most people have for Homemade Christmas. macaroni for Christmas. Oh, you're going to do an Italian Christmas, oh, huh? <laughs> <laughs> we used to. I'll have gluten-free pasta. You can have gluten-free pasta. So if there were just like maybe three or four quick little tips that you could pass on that practitioner who's listening or even a patient that's listening to this could take to heart, what would they be? This is for everybody. For um, everybody, Yeah. <laughs> I think we forget is to keep up with physical activity during yes, the holidays. Sometimes yes. yeah, you're on your program or you're off your program. If you can incorporate, like I just made it a habit. I live on a one mile long street. I walk two miles every morning and then ride bikes two miles every night. So that's like ingrained in me. So during the holidays, even if we go to somebody's house, I'm like, when am I going to take a walk? When can we take the bike? So when you're used to doing something, stick with it through the holidays too. Don't wait till January 1st and to make a commitment then. But keep it up during the holidays. And you can catch up or keep up with the extra calories and burn those off. Even just walking after meals. And that's super important for some with blood sugar regulation issues. But walking after meals is a nice way of remembering, oh, I got to take a walk today. Wait, I'll do it right after the meal. And that actually helps to keep your metabolism elevated. You pull glucose into the muscles without the need of insulin. 
So walks after meals are great. And the endorphins stay high and you can take a walk with somebody and have a chat or be on the phone. Or- mm-hmm. There's a lot of easy ways to keep active. And that just will help you balance the calories in versus calories out during the holiday. If you go into a big, big meal, I tell people, ruin your appetite. Ruin <laughs> your appetite. I love it. Ruin your appetite. You won't be starving because you'll make a meal out of anything, right? If you haven't eaten all day and there's that plate of Christmas cookies that aren't so good, you'll make a meal out of them. So why not either stay on your schedule of breakfast, lunch, dinner, a couple of snacks, and then the big meal at the end. You won't be hungry at the end of the day. Or just have a healthy snack right before you go. Or even sometimes you've got to dig a little bit, but there might be fresh fruits and vegetables, a platter that you can pick from so that you just kind of take the edge off your appetite. So when you go to eat the full meal, you're not starving yeah. and you don't get stuffed. So eat well. Eat That's well. awesome. <laughs> well, they always say don't go shopping on an empty stomach. Well, maybe we could mm-hmm. say don't go to the holiday party on an mm-hmm. empty stomach either. That's exactly, a good one. Exactly. And then alcohol too. You can have like one drink. And you can spread it out and have like just a seltzer or something, the one drink and then salsa for the rest of the time. But people tend to overdo it on the holidays. And then they're so sorry that they did that. Yeah. So you can take just a few ounces of wine. I put a couple of frozen grapes in. If you want a second, you get two more ounces of wine. So it's like you're having two drinks. But really to keep that in mind, like just be cognizant of that. You don't have to overload with alcohol just because it's holiday time. Keep your wits yeah. about you. <laughs> Well, it's kind of an interesting one that I've been starting to do is eating blueberries after yeah. a meal because well, there's actually quite a good research, and you know this, but like blueberries can actually help decrease the insulin sensitivity or the insulin release. So yeah, having go out and, I mean, obviously not overdo it, but finish your meal with a, you know, a nice handful or two of good, healthy, organic blueberries helps fight inflammation, a little bit of fiber helps to sort of regulate blood sugar. Phytonutrients. Yeah. So they're like little round pebbles of incredible dense nutrition in the blueberry. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If you think about what nature takes to create something that's blue, I mean, it's pretty (laughs) incredible, actually. And it has a vibration. I think that we're drawn to some of these colorful fruits and vegetables. There's a certain vibration to them. When I went and had biochemistry, organic chemistry, if you looked at a vitamin, even everything had this frequency to it that you can actually can be measured. And I really think that that happens with colors like that. We know that their vibrations yeah. draw us and then they're actually good for us after all. But I think that's the first thing that draws us maybe is the color. And the colors themselves have these fantastic nutrition. It's their nutritional value. I like to call them phytonutrients. Yeah, it's a definitely. Color and taste and flavor. So yeah, remember your berries, especially if people don't eat any other fruits, or I'll tell them at least have some citrus, but handful of berries handful of berries blackberries raspberries yeah strawberries usually they can be quite covered in pesticides is the only thing so here's something that i don't know what i was watching i was probably watching something on netflix but this guy was like if you really think about it if you look at your body if you look at your hands you look at your fingernails you look at your skin everything that is your body has come from the food that you have eaten when you really break it down like that you are what you eat. You are what you eat. And we don't talk about, I mean, I know you probably do, but I think as a human race or whatever, we don't think about that. So if you're at your holiday party and you're looking at someone's brought cookies that are covered in blue and think about that coloring, that coloring that you are about to put in your body, A, it has to be detoxified by your liver. Mm-hmm. And if you're consuming a lot of alcohol, that might be slightly slowed mm-hmm. down and but your body has to get rid of that. It doesn't want to absorb that blue dye into your body. So, yeah, 
You or are what make you your eat. cookies with healthy things. Well, that's right? a pub. See, that's why I was doing this. So this is leading <laughs> us into our final section, which is Bethelens. Actually, National Cookie Day was four days ago on December 4th. <laughs> so we actually did some stuff on social media around Happy National Cookie Day. But I always think of the month of December as kind of like the cookie month, right? We're all cooking, <laughs> baking. So run us through some of Beth Allen's healthier holiday baking tips. Well, if you can't make your own your own cookies, you can look for these ingredients, but I don't know that you'll find them. But I recommend like dark chocolate and cacao. If you can get cacao, 50 to 60% dark chocolate chips can make anything taste better. Yeah, yeah. And if it's raw cacao, that is that is even better. I don't know if it's a good time to say this, but I don't go much higher with a percentage of cacao because unfortunately, another nutritionist brought it to my attention and I just wanted to cry, but there things get taken up from the soil like lead and cadmium. Mm. And the cocoa plant can take up lead and cadmium and the darker chocolate you go above 50 or 60, the more chance you have of having some concentrated lead and cadmium with your cookie. So I would recommend sticking down to about the 50 to 60 percent mark. And I know that could be bad news for some, but I thought it was important to mention because some people are going, I'm eating 90 percent cacao. And I was like, well, you don't want to overdo that. I hate to say. So you can start with a dark chocolate chip, 50 to 60 percent cacao. Using that whole grain flour, if you tolerate flour, you can use oatmeal, you can use gluten-free or nut flours. There are a lot of different options for that base. And you can add psyllium powder for fiber. That is so easy to stick in there. No one will even know it. You can stick some protein powder in without getting the cookies too dry, but you can use an egg. I have egg white protein powder. You can use, if you're okay with dairy, a whey protein isolate kind of mm -hmm. mixes in well and nicely. Collagen peptides with tryptophan, you can sneak those into a recipe and nobody even knows it. Even chocolate greens powder, you can get organic greens powder. And I've gotten all three. There's a plain chocolate and a berry one. And they're actually pretty good. And you can put those into your baking too. You might lose some of the benefit when you bake at high temperatures, mm -hmm. but it's still in there. Or you can use it in chocolatricious, right? In my chocolate recipes and it's not baked. Ah, the so chocolatricious. Yeah. Go to the website. It's on there. <laughs> yeah, I love that. It makes it a meal. So chocolate greens powder too. You can sneak in some greens. If you can sneak in another vegetable, good luck. I've had people, uh, students of mine, put spinach and brownies and even Interesting. black beans and brownies. <laughs> black beans and spinach and she had a two-year-old and I had him do it for my class once and I was teaching college and one girl did not puree the black beans. So she didn't get any extra credit. That was pretty bad. But if you're going to make brownies, cut back on the sugar, add some black beans pureed and some spinach, you can actually sneak a vegetable into your cookies or into your brownies. Dried fruit or fresh fruit, whatever you can sneak in there, will give you some of those great phytonutrients we were talking about. Nuts and seeds for tasty crunch and or coconut as well. Spices, and we didn't talk about spices before, but spices, people forget they grow out of the ground. They have phytonutrients. They have benefits, the therapeutic benefits for us. As we know, ginger is an anti-inflammatory. You can use ginger, you use cinnamon, helps support blood glucose regulation, cloves, allspice, pumpkin pie spice, etc. And extracts too, like anise or peppermint or vanilla, not the fake, but the real thing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, you get some benefit from that. It does bake out, so it might be better in a no-bake recipe. There's actually a movie called Extract, and I don't know if anybody's ever seen that. And it's Jason Bateman, who I love. It's just so funny. And it's all about, he owned an extract company, and he talked about how when you bake the extract, it actually dissipates when you're baking. So there are ways to kind of seal it in. But it was a very funny movie. Yeah. Cool. Movie, you can go watch. <laughs> so there are some tips. Awesome. And I think we have this blog post up on Optimal the Blog. Mm -hmm. Cool. Yes, it is. Okay. Well, I want to just finish the year by just sort of doing a little review because 
we have posted over 230 blog posts this year. So if you like what we talk about on the blog, on the podcast, and you're interested in some of the biomarker research, and, and sprinkled in among the biomarkers is some other great stuff as well. We've also published some monographs and some white papers. So we're really committed at Optimal DX to providing the very latest in research so that you feel confident in the work that we do. And our goal is to help you help your patients. So coming over to Optimal DX, we're going to be introducing a new membership concept in the new year, new subscription options. And ultimately, we're obviously very blood chemistry focused, but ultimately we want to be a resource for you to be able to have better conversations with your patients, more informed conversations. So I'm super grateful for everyone that has joined Optimal DX. We are a very small company. There's nine of us, I think, that are not even working full-time. I mean, a lot of us are full-time, obviously, but the work that we're doing really is game-changing, I think. And so thanks to all of our subscribers. Without you, there is no ODX because we are completely bootstrapped by all of your subscriptions help us do the work that we're doing. So thank you so much for doing that. If you want to join, go over to OptimalDX.com. We've got a ton of information for you. And Beth, I want to thank you very much for all of your hard work. I mean, you're providing a tremendous service to not only myself and the company, but also to practitioners and their patients as well. We are very grateful for it. So on that, we wanted to talk a little bit about next year and what we hope to be doing. Our goal is to be a little more punctual with our podcast. So do apologize if you like this stuff and we're not doing it fast enough. We are hoping to have a regular schedule. And one of the things that we're going to do is to invite fellow practitioners, nutritional specialists, influencers out, out in the field to come on the podcast and we'll do some interviews. And we're really interested, and this is something that Beth, you brought up, we're really interested in finding out what other practitioners are doing in their practices and also in their own personal lives around the protocols for optimal health. What are they? What are you doing? What are you recommending? So we're going to be bringing in some influencers and some people in the field who are going to be sharing their stories with us. What else are we going to be doing? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, we'll be full up with that. Yeah, we'll be full up with that. And I think the other thing too is Beth does all this deep research. So we're going to do some like quick excerpts. What? what, (laughs) Quick certs. No, what were you going to call them? Quick quick serps. Quick serps. Excerpts. Excerpts. Quick excerpts. So quick serps. Quick serps. And then also even that question that we asked each other, which is like kind of, and I didn't answer it, but you answered it. You know, if you were to run one biomarker on your patients, which one would it be? So that kind of thing. Ultimately, if you listen to the podcast, we want you to get four or five little nuggets that you can use in your practice, that you can use with your patients to make a difference. And that's ultimately what we're all about. So wishing you all happy holidays, happy end of 2022, Mm -hmm. happy new year, looking forward to the new. Beth, anything you want to end on? Just again, I want to thank practitioners. Thank you for paying attention to this very, very important issue. Like it will be a disruptor when people realize that they have information in their hands, even with standard blood work, that you can see things that maybe other traditional practitioners aren't seeing. I just thank you for realizing the importance of this. And like Dr. Weatherby said, join up with the software, join the AMA. I think maybe when we do the interviews, if we do it on a way that we can take some comments and requests from people and help us to drive this bus. Yeah, tell definitely. Tell us what you're interested in. What more yeah. would you like to see? Thank you. Cool. For awesome. Well, thanks everyone. Thanks for listening. Happy holidays and wishing you all a very happy new year. And we'll see you in 2023.